This is episode 8 of Functional First Podcast, where we speak with leading experts in the field of functional health. I'm Katie Imamoto from Functional Media, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Ursin Religioso about TMJ dysfunction. Thank you for letting us interview you today. No problem. Can you briefly introduce yourself? Sure. I go by Dr. E online. That's kind of like my online persona, but my name's Ursin Religioso. I'm a physical therapist, doctor of physical therapy. Uh, got my bachelor's and master's from Duval College in Buffalo in 98. And then I graduated from the University of St. Augustine in Florida. I did a manual therapy residency there and kind of got classically trained in orthopedic manual therapy, became a fellow, did McKenzie training, trained with a lot of gurus, and then kind of founded my own approach and released a bunch of products under the brand Edge Mobility System. And now I'm kind of like uh, into teaching all around the world and heavily into social media. I'm still a clinician too. And so today we are focusing on TMJ. Sure, yeah. I saw TMJ patients for years. I had like a almost 80 to 90% TMJ practice. Uh, so most important question, have you ever had a patient bite your hand? Absolutely, <laughs> yeah. Um, one of the problems with that is I would always joke and tell, tell people like, don't end my career, <laughs> you know? And I, there was one dentist who particularly referred to me, Dr. Cullen, he's since retired. He did some kind of crazy manual muscle test where when I would say close down lightly before I was doing jaw distractions, because I just want like a firm grasp on my thumb before I do the distraction. But yeah, this doctor, he would do some kind of manual muscle test and, and the patients, after maybe 10 patients who bit me, and I would say like, I said close lightly, you know? And they would say like, oh, the doctor who sent us, he basically just says, bite my thumb as hard as you can. And that was like his manual muscle test. And I'm thinking like, is he wearing some kind of like steel thimble or something? But that's why, because that's how we tested their strength. I don't think that's any kind of break test that I've ever learned, but yes, I've been bitten. I've also had my thumb sucked before too. And I'm like, this is not working for you. Let's try something else. So what got you interested in TMJ dysfunction? It's an underserved population. And I started just seeing a lot of TMJ patients because one of my one of my classmates who's an OT, her father was that guy, Dr. Cull. Her name is Sarah Cull. She also graduated from Devo College. And I marketed to him basically just by being a manual therapist. I just thought I could handle anything. I can fix everything. And that was kind of my background and why I wanted to become a manual therapist. I thought these passive techniques are going to fix everyone. I just had this like manual therapist gone complex, like how orthopedic surgeons often have. So I thought that, you know, hey, it's just attached to the neck. I should be able to treat this too. And I had just as many failures as successes. So I thought I need additional training in that. Uh, I trained under Mario Inaracabado, who's one of the only physios in the world who actually works in a dental school. He's from Santiago. So I took all of his courses and, you know, I consider him a mentor and I got certified in his approach through University of St. Augustine. And then I went back and I remarketed to Dr. Call and he started sending me a ton of patients. And I did a, a lecture in front of like 80 or 100 Buffalo dentists and that just snowballed. So it's... It's a really underserved population because even in, at least in U.S. manual therapy fellowship, it's been identified that not too many residents or fellows see enough TMJ cases. So, you know, these people are out there. And what I always like to tell people is every TMJ patient is a cervical patient, but not every cervical patient is a TMJ patient. But unless you ask, 
you may not even know that you have a TMJ patient. Like a, a patient with headaches that you think is cervicogenic, there might be some kind of TMJ overlap. So, you know, if someone has neck pain, someone has back pain, um, especially like back pain and lower extremity stuff, you can kind of distance yourself from how that feels, right? But if it's like if your head hurts and speaking hurts and eating hurts and things that like social interaction and eating, which is such a pleasurable thing, and you do that with like friends and family and loved ones. If you can't do those things, and plus your head hurts, it's like you can't distance yourself. It's like you hurt, right? So I think one of my mentors also said that you know if you if you help a patient with back pain, they're going to be grateful. If you help a patient with TMJ dysfunction, they're going to leave you in their will. They're, it's a really grateful population. So you were saying that you were marketing to dentists. Was yeah. there any pushback from them that you were encroaching on their territory at all? Uh, not necessarily. I mean, I think the dentists that I typically market to, I don't, early on in my career, I, I had pushback from any doctor for whatever I marketed to. Like, hey, I'm this manual therapist. I can help your patients with neck pain or back pain or whatever. And, you know, physicians, I don't know how it is in Canada, but physicians in the U.S., they tend to be either very happy to see you or they're, they're too busy to see you or they're, they're really nice to your face and they'll say they're going to send you patients and you never see a patient from them you know so after getting rejected so many times you're basically marketing and, and having no results i only started marketing to people who i had success from several patients and i would always tell the patients like hey make sure you, you tell me you saw you know ursin religioso at wherever clinic i happened to be at, at the time before i had my own practice so I would make sure that I, it was almost like inception. I planted like this little seed in their brain. And I would always tell the patients like, thanks, Dr. So-and-so for sending me to Urson. Because of you, I'm better. So it was almost like the doctors, like the doctor did all the work. It was because he made the referral that they're better. And in some way, that's true. We got to stroke their ego a little bit. If I had success with enough dentist patients or ENT patients, who I got a lot of other TMJ patients from, or neurologists, because I taught them all the same kind of marketing technique, right? It was, hey, you know, if you have a headache patient or a facial pain patient or a neck pain patient, try this like one minute screen. Like if all, all your tests are negative and they have pain with any kind of neck range of motion, if this area is tender or if their jaw clicks or they have facial tenderness, then you send them to me, right? Mm -hmm. So they're pretty, most of them were pretty receptive. Because again, I already had success with their patients. They're like, oh, great, because I had no idea what to do with these people. You know, but I've had other dentists tell me like, well, everything can be fixed with a splint and you don't splint, so how are you gonna fix the patients? I'm like, I don't, I don't, I wouldn't fight it, but I would just sometimes tell them, you know, if everything could be fixed with a splint, then why do you still have patients that are in pain? Or that's like saying all low back pain can be helped with foot orthotics, mm -hmm. you know, and it's just, just no always or never. Yeah. Uh, do you have any advice for clinicians who may be interested in specializing in TMJ issues and wanting to grow their practice that way? Yeah, absolutely. Again, um, it didn't take me very long to become like this TMJ expert, so to speak, in Buffalo, New York, because I was the only one doing it. I mean, you kind of learn it in school, maybe cursory, not, not too much, not enough like anything really to be an expert. Depends on who your ortho professor was. But you need to take the right courses. And I do recommend Roccobato's courses through University of St. Augustine. I know there are other courses out there, but I haven't, I haven't taken them, so I can't speak for them. They might be great, they might not be, but that's my experience. You typically also need like a mentor, an online mentor, and I have a mentorship program. I also have an online course 
in the eclectic approach to temporary mandibular management. So if you don't want to take the live course, it's the full course taped live professionally. But courses in and of itself aren't enough because what you get from a mentor is you, you learn from all of our mistakes and you learn kind of like our shortcuts because really experience is just is learning from your mistakes and adapting and changing your behaviors and learning what works and doesn't work. So, you know, it, it, can, it can either prevent you from making mistakes or kind of enhance your clinical decision making or help you work through tough cases. So it, just like with anything, whether it's TMJ, running, low back pain, it's a combination of the right coursework, you know, the right research and the right mentor. Okay. Can you briefly describe the anatomy of the TMJ? <laughs> <laughs> briefly, yes. I mean, there's a skull, right? And there's a mandible. And the skull is typically fixed after a certain age and the mandible moves. So if you have followed any of my work online, you know that I always I move really away from pathoanatomy. But because of the nature of the TMJ, not too many people know the anatomy. And I think patients need to know why they might their posterior structures might be sensitized. It's one of the only ways times I go about posture mechanically, because pain science has taught us that posture is not related to pain. And that's definitely true because even though I'm also McKenzie trained and that, that helps me a lot with my TMJ patients. You know, before if I used McKenzie training only, I would think that posture, like I was a posture Nazi and, and everyone wants, needs retractions, everyone needs press ups and everyone needs a lumbar roll. But the fallacy is that correcting something and having this, this mindset or the mechanism behind it for why that works, just because something works doesn't mean the mechanism behind it is true, right? But the thing with, with posture and TMJ is that the more forward head is, and forward head in and, of, in and of itself is not a bad thing until all of a sudden it becomes your trigger, right? Just like lumbar flexion isn't a bad thing. It's not going to blow out a disc like some people say because it's just like a God-given motion. If you weren't not supposed to do it, you wouldn't be able to do it. But just due to lack of variability because so many people are texting and driving and writing, I mean, unless you just are like, painting ceilings for a living, most of the time you are unloaded. So if you're unloaded and your, your cervical spine is protracted, your mandible becomes retracted. And when the mandible becomes retracted, it's, it's almost like you are pulling your mouth open and people kind of realize that you would look foolish if you hang out like this all day. So instead of correcting it by doing this and having your mouth closed, your, your masseter and your temporalis kind of do that. Like, so you bring your lower lip up instead of closing your mouth so you do this. And I'm exaggerating, but that's what I call TMJ face. They look sad because their face hurts, <laughs> but also because their masseters and temporalis are fighting the jaw getting pulled back from the forward head. So it's not posture that causes it, but it's a lack of movement. And really the best position is the next position. And there's no right way to sit. You should just move and move repeatedly. It's just that if you've been doing this all day, a novel strategy or what I like to call a reset is retraction, cervical retraction with mandible protraction as that will kind of desensitize the sensitize and kind of compress posterior structures of the bilaminar zone and the TMJ. That's as much as I, that's briefly how I can describe mm -hmm. it, but otherwise it takes me like two or three hours to get through it in my <laughs> lecture. <laughs> and what are some typical patient presentations that you would see? Well, you, you um, I said earlier that every TMJ patient is a cervical patient. So, I mean, one of the other ways you can get better at treating the TMJ is just get better at treating the cervical spine and cervicogenic headaches because they'll often have that. Um, and even if they don't have a cervical presentation, like they have no 
headaches and they only have facial pain, they still typically are forward head, so they have lots of upper cervical flexion, so you still might be mobilizing the cervical spine and giving them cervical exercises. But the typical presentation is usually unilateral. They may deviate, they may click or clunk, depending on whether it's intraarticular or extraarticular, um, and the hyper hypermobility, or whether it's internally deranged, like if a disc is subluxing, if they're um, moving a bit too far and they're hitting their articular eminence with their condyle. You typically are gonna see the deviation to the side of tightness or pain, but oftentimes the side that's hypermobile often hurts. It's usually unilateral, but sometimes it's bilateral. They usually have difficulty eating, sometimes smiling, sometimes speaking, they can't open wide. And it's just kind of analogous to a low back pain patient or a neck patient who can't flex. Once the brain puts the, that area on lockdown, motion is limited. So, but it's not because it's bad for them, it's just because it triggers their complaints. And you're often kind of fighting against those muscles that are hypertonic. But if you're, if you're like this, and again, the masseter and the temporalis already taught, you know, they're taught and they're contracting all day. So opening is, is difficult, right? Can you explain how that disc works? Well, yes. And um, what I would tell patients is that the bottom of the skull is like a ball where it articulates and the top of the jaw is a ball. So I would say it's a ball on ball. Does that seem like a stable surface to you? No. No, right. So the disc is concave superiorly and concave inferiorly. And the way that works is that provides stability to both surfaces. So normally the disc travels along with the condyle. When you first open, there's a rolling phase during about 40 to 50% of motion. And then the condyle glides anteriorly and the disc is supposed to be on top of the condyle. But what, what often happens with that protraction or you combine a protraction with like a, a trigger or what I call a negative one, or you know, people will kind of do this all day or they always bite their nails and they bite their pencils and they're always like unilaterally loading. If you compress that side, like you're always thinking, um, you're doing like that kind of thinker's pose, it often squeezes the disc in, into sublux anteriorly and combined with the fact that the ball no longer sits on the, on the ball because you have a forward head and the condyle ends up going posteriorly now they're no longer interacting and the disc is not articulating with either surface. If the disc ends up subluxing enough, then it no longer has that biconcave superior and inferior shape and it kind of becomes malformed so it doesn't really fit anymore. But a lot of that clicking that you hear or feel with TMJ derangements is the disc ends up being anterior and it's actually reducing and then subluxing again, and reducing and subluxing with every movement, but nothing ever happens to drag it back, or there's not enough space to drag it back because once there's that lack of space, because the disc isn't there, there's like this, I'm not gonna say a bone on bone relationship, but between the hypertonicity of the temporalis and the masseter, and the fact that they might be weight bearing on it, the disc just doesn't fit there anymore. So that's why like inhibitory techniques like ISTM or positional inhibition to kind of re relax that side or, or jaw distractions helps along with possibly mand mandible or disc recapture techniques, which I'm not really worried about the click, I'm worried about the function and emotion. But that's how the disc works, in short. So if someone has a click, but they don't really have any other symptoms, do, would you still treat that? Not really. The Rockabato training in me says I should. But if they can eat and they have full function and they have great range of motion and otherwise have no limitations or complaints, I don't really think it's a problem. For some cases, if it's an early click, 
I think that's an easily treatable thing. Early meaning early on in the opening or mandible depression. That means that the disc might be only slightly anteriorly subluxed. But if the click is, is mid-range to late range, it's most likely kind of malformed. It's not going to fit anymore. It's like a puzzle piece that doesn't fit anymore. So I'm not going to bother trying to reduce it because even if I kind of recapture it with some crazy manual therapy technique, it may not fit. So if it's a mid to late range and especially late range click, I'm not worried about it, especially if pain and function is improved. You mentioned leaning on your hand is one trigger that may right. lead to TMJ issues. Are there any other common ones? I don't know if things will predispose it, but once you actually have TMJ irritation, things that tend to trigger are eating harder or crunchier foods. Like people may need to, they may need to be on a, a soft chew or no chew diet for a couple of weeks, then progress to soft chew, then kind of do one normal meal a day, you know, kind of a graded exposure back into normal eating. So yeah, there's this, there is just like talking on the phone, you know, tilting your head to one side. And you can see how that also would be like a cervical problem. But I mean, tilting your head one way also kind of loads your jaw one way. Maybe always sleeping on one side. I had one patient who was basically just, he would just eat popcorn only on one side once a, once a week. He'd like always come back. He would just be irritated just once a week. And, you know, sometimes you have to play detective and like, I would always say, are, are you sure you're not doing something that is like irritating you only once a week? Because how can you be better like six days a week? Like you have to be doing something. It's like, oh, I figured what it was. I really like to eat popcorn kernels. Not even like popcorn. He likes to eat like just, he purposely leaves a bunch of them like half pots. And he might as well just be eating rocks at that point. So I was like, hey, why don't you try avoiding that for a couple of weeks? Or why don't you pop your popcorn all the way? Do you see any post-surgical cases? Typically, no. I've seen a couple. Again, Dr. Cole who used to refer me a lot of the patients. He would send them to some specialist in Florida because he always said, I don't trust any of the surgeons in Buffalo who are doing it. I said earlier, it's a hinge joint in the first half of motion and then it glides. But what normally happens is once they remove the disc, if, especially if it's a unilateral problem, they turn it into only a hinge joint. And that doesn't really make any sense. It's a bilateral joint. You can't have movement in one and not the other. So if you only make one side a hinge, like what, what's happening to the other side, right? I, I don't really like disc recapture techniques. They seem to be not as successful as they should be. The last time I did research on outcomes, it seemed to, be, seemed to be about as successful as spinal surgery. So we'll leave it at that. And for clinicians who don't see a lot of TMJ patients, are there any red flags that they should be aware of? You know, there's a lot of joke and stigmatism behind TMJ patients. And they would say that, oh, I forget what, what one guru said, something about if, you know, if you have a low back pain patient, it's easy if you have a TMJ patient, like run for the hills or something, or get out the Prozac, something like that. But like I said, it, not only are they an underserved population, but people don't believe them. You know, I had a physio student and she had TMJ problems and she kept on telling her dentist, like my ear hurts, and I think it's my TMJ. And he's just like, your TMJ is here, your ear is here. And I'm like, she's not saying her foot hurts, like literally one is like millimeters away. Like, why do you have to be such an a-hole? People, people don't believe them, you know? And I think, I think that's a problem. So because of that whole social problem too, like they can't eat, they can't speak. Sometimes, I mean, I have had a, I've had a TMJ flare up too. I don't know what caused it, but I couldn't smile. You know, it hurt to smile and, and that's a problem. So you can see why they often are a depressed population. And I think that's, that's one of the things you have to watch out for is if you're not well-versed in pain science or 
you don't know um, like breathing techniques or things that otherwise kind of like tune down a ramped up nervous system, or you don't have maybe a network of other providers you can refer to, like a good dentist, a good psychologist, people who are all on board with your approach and like a, a biopsychosocial approach, you might not be prepared for this population. How would you approach the assessment of TMJ? Well, I also start with cervical spine. I have this general, what I call upper quarter clinical practice patterns. I look at cervical, shoulder, and trunk rotation, thoracic movements. There's regional interdependence. And when, especially with unilateral problems, you're gonna find unilateral issues in all of those. And then I, I look at overall jaw movement and depression um, and lateral excursion, so side to side movement. And I look for any asymmetries. And I don't always try to make someone perfectly symmetrical because you have to respect anatomy and sometimes people always had a, a small deviation. Sometimes people come to me and their jaw is slightly shifted and I think, oh, just because they have hypertension on one side, hypermobility on one side, but we, we do mobilization, we do inhibitory techniques, we improve all their mobility and their jaw's still crooked. You know, I've had patients come in and they're, they're worried about that and I was like, hey, maybe it was just crooked to begin with. And they come in with like a ton of pictures, which is easy now because of social media and they're like, oh yeah, I checked like a ton of pictures from a couple years ago. My jaw's just always been like that. So. I'm sorry, what was the question? <laughs> Where did they get stuff? Oh, assessments. Yes. Yeah, I mean, so that's what I look at in short mm-hmm. is, is just jaw movement and cervical movement, but also repeated motion exam. And again, because I'm McKenzie trained, I think that it's a really simple thing to see, you know, how do, how do 10 protractions affect you? How do 10 retractions affect you? How do 10 mandible protractions affect you? Because usually a directional preference to most joints, meaning that when you repeatedly load a joint to end range, in a particular direction, uh, and only one direction, uh, if you find the right one for the right joints, that will tend to imp- rapidly improve their range of motion and their function and their pain. And so you briefly mentioned posture and TMJ issues. And Did I say posture? Hand yeah, don't tell Greg Lehman. <laughs> can you elaborate on that a little bit? About what? Posture? Yes. Oh, now I'm afraid Greg's gonna come after me. <laughs> I don't really say posture, right? I don't say mm-hmm. the P word. Okay. What I would say was you need to get out of your habitual position. Mm-hmm. Your habitual position is sensitizing certain structures in your face, your jaw, and your neck. If you move out of that, right, so like my reset would be if this is your habitual posture or this is, and it's, it's a form of unloading, you need to load up. You need to repeatedly protrude your jaw. You need to maybe repeatedly kind of isometrically fire your digastrics to reciprocally inhibit your your mandible elevators. So I, I don't work on, so much on posture. I work on more avoiding the triggers, which I call triggers or negative ones, and doing enough resets and building up the buffer or plus ones. Because to me, it's all about the variability in introducing enough of a buffer zone above zero. Like I look at it as, as like a timeline. You know, this is a trigger, too much hard chewing is a trigger, too much texting, driving, writing, typing is a trigger. Avoid triggers and do enough resets. And then if you balance enough so that you end up on the far side of, to the right of zero, then you, you've built a buffer zone so you can maybe eat more food, open your mouth more, right? So it, it's, it's like that for not only the TMJ, but basically every area. If you, avoid, if you avoid triggers enough, if you prevent the CNS alarm from going off enough, the CNS can kind of tone down its vigilance, and then you just move in enough ways and you prevent, present the CNS with enough novel stimulus and things just tend to clear themselves up. Do you use any modalities or acupuncture or anything like that? 
No physio or PT in the entire United States is allowed to do acupuncture because we're not acupuncturists. We can use acupuncture needles for dry needling. Mm -hmm. I'm trained in dry needling through Kineticor, but we it is not thus far in our practice act in New York. So also I would never needle someone's face. What about other modalities? Um, I do ISTM with my edge tool. But otherwise, uh, you know, everything I do, for me, again, it was an ironic choice several years ago to choose the brand, the manual therapist, and now I transition to the eclectic approach in modern manual therapy because I say I use as little manual therapy as possible. Manual therapy is still passive like any technique. It's passive like ultrasound is because it's not a fix. Anything that makes someone better, you reset that nervous system and you reset their thresholds their movement and pain thresholds, it's not gonna last unless the patient reinforces it. So no matter how fancy my treatment gets, I try, again, try to use as little manual therapy as possible, but anytime I, I scrape or maybe I'll needle or do some sort of isometric or PNF technique or joint manipulation or mobilization, I would always tell the patient was, if you feel better, move better after this, the effects of this are going to be temporary or transient. And it's after I open up that window of improvement, you have to keep it open by reinforcing with the resets I give you so if you walk out of here and moving better and feeling better, I will give you a strategy to keep it. And you only have to do it if you want to stay better. So a lot of your treatment then is active exercises and movement? It's the only thing that keeps people better. If I had to choose between manual therapy, exercise, and education, they all work great multimodal. But if I had to choose, it would be education first, then exercise, then manual therapy last. Because manual therapy is passive. It's like beating on dead meat and expecting it to improve. It can open up a window and it can reduce the association of threat about a movement. It can change a neuro tag because pain is really a learned behavior. So it can change the association about it, but it's not going to be reinforced because that's like saying, I'm going to learn a fact. I'm going to learn algebra by, go, by going over one problem. When do you find it necessary to refer a patient to a different healthcare provider, such as a dentist? I have a very short leash. If I expect a patient is going to improve and their compliance and I don't have any improvement in function, pain, or mobility, and I don't otherwise think they're centrally sensitized like a fibromyalgia patient or you know, chronic whiplash or any of those kind of patients that are very, very slow responders, they have a lot of comorbidities, they need like more than just what a physio can provide them, you know, those people, maybe they need a lot of visits. The average patient should get better within four to six visits, not necessarily 100%, but very rapidly. If I think they kind of fall into that category or if something feels off, like they're just not responding like I think they should and they're compliant and they're like a well-adjusted person, I, I basically only see them twice. Do you find that most people are pretty quick responders? Most people are. It's not just from TMJ, it's for anything. Mm -hmm. And there's a stigmatism about chronic pain and persistent pain that's, you know, the longer you've had pain, the harder it is to treat. But basic research in, in the past couple of years in manual therapy and outcomes showed that, you know, even when the average patient had low back pain for a year, as long as they had not necessarily like a very specific approach, but a multi-center trial where there wasn't specific criteria, like you got to do McKenzie, you got to do Maitland, you got to do pain science. It was like an interactive, educational kind of manual therapy, maybe education, definitely active exercise approach, whatever that may be. The average patient got better, even though they had pain for over a year. So we've all had home runs with patients who've had pain for like one year, two year, three year, four year, five years. And just statistically, about 80%, and again, I'm just throwing out a number, about 80% of people are going to get better rapidly. It's not always four to six visits, but 
in general, if you haven't made a dramatic change in your case, and again, they're not centrally sensitized, like a CRIPS patient, RSD, chronic whiplash, those cases that everyone finds difficult because their nervous system is kind of permanently on alert and it, they can't be reset, like their thresholds cannot be reset. Their function can be improved, but they might have pain every day of their life um, with what we currently know. The average person absolutely should be significantly better within a couple of visits. Are there certain dentistry procedures that can start or exacerbate TMJ issues? Yes, at least with the research that I learned when I was certified, which is way back in 2005. Some of the things that predispose people to TMJ issues are orthodontics, you know, and I think of all the headgear and all the abnormal stress you have, and, and maybe it's just, it's a stressful thing. You don't like looking like a, you know, you have all these brackets and headgear and you, especially if you wear the headgear during the day, not only at night. I mean, I used to wear headgear at night and I'd put it on and I would try to put it, pull as tight as possible. And, and almost every night I would just like basically throw it across the room. I hated it so much. Um, but that's a lot of passive force to the jaw, to bones that otherwise aren't necessarily supposed to move like these bones move. I mean, your teeth are always moving, but I think that predisposes them to that. And sometimes even just dental procedures, I always tell patients like, hey, you know, if you have difficulty opening, you have to let your dentist you know to just give you a break every once in a while. Because after we restored like 50% of your emotion, I still don't expect you to have your mouth open for an hour. You know, ask your dentist for frequent breaks, and unless they're a jerk, they'll give you frequent breaks. Like if, if they're not much of a hurry, and they're like, oh, I can't afford to give you a break because I have all these patients, I'm like, you need a new dentist. And what are your thoughts on mouth guards? And they help when they help. Okay. Yeah. Um, there's no one treatment that's going to help everything. And, you know, some mouth guards help and some mouth guards don't. And I don't think they really recapture a disc. I definitely don't think that mouth guards actually help. A lot of dentists give mouth guards to prevent clenching, but many times it actually enhances clenching. Because when you increase the surface area of the teeth, there's actually just more to clench. And with the mouth guard on top or bottom, the teeth actually occlude earlier. So sometimes it actually enhances clenching. If it helps, it helps. I don't make splints. Okay. Somehow, a lot of my TMJ patients still got better. The goal should be always to get rid of a splint. Just like even if you have to give orthotics for a foot, the goal shouldn't be to wear them forever. With TMJ, are there a lot of comorbidities associated with it? You know, it's not something that I actually looked at. I'm looking at that more for just people who aren't getting better, mm -hmm. right? And what pain science has, has shown us in the past couple of years are the longer someone's had pain, typically it's associated with a higher amount of comorbidities. Because overall, the people with higher comorbidities are just overall unhealthy. And the way I look at them now is, you know, this, this late into my career, like almost 20 years into my career, I like looking at the research that shows maybe there are patients who we shouldn't be treating. You know, it's not because I don't want to beat myself up so much because I don't want to feel like I failed someone. But I know that if someone has like a high BMI, they kind of smell like smoke, they've never exercised a day in their life, they have high cholesterol, hypertension, like they're, they're taking 30 medications, I think they might have pain. Maybe they have body-wide pain, maybe they have headaches, maybe they have TMJ pain, but it's like pain is the only thing they can perceive, but they don't necessarily know that they're like one sneeze away from exploding the circle of Willis. Overall, they don't have a good ecosystem. Mm -hmm. So how do you deal with the psychosocial aspect of it? It's an uphill battle, you know. Unfortunately, the patients who need pain science the most 
are the ones who sometimes are the hardest to reach. I wish that I had like an Avengers team of different healthcare professionals who are all on board with pain science and I never had that in Buffalo to this day. Like I would want a neurologist, a psychologist, a nutritionist, all the a dietitian, like all these people who are exercise physiologists, drug coach, everyone who's on board with the same approach. Because I, I can refer patients to, to doctors that I trust, but they might just run it, even though it's like a, this particular neurologist that I trust, that I would go to if I had any kind of problem that I think a neurologist would need to look at. Um, they just like vomit thought viruses all over patients because that's the way they're trained. They mean well. Most, patient, most clinicians mean well, but it, unless they've been you know trained in a biopsych approach, they may say a lot of nocebo things. The patients who respond to pain science are the same patients who are gonna rapid respond anyway. I call them rapid responders, the 80%. Most people have a fixed mindset versus a growth mindset. So they're, they're kind of right, they're, they're already actively seeking out change and they're, they're gonna listen to you whatever you have to say. But the, the pain science research would show that the people who kind of respond the best, who are centrally sensitized, are the ones who actually can accept that they might have pain every day or at least with many activities. And that is a very difficult thing to accept. Mm -hmm. right, if I told you, hey, you might have this pain every day of your life, get used to it and start moving. Yeah, you'd be like, screw this guy. I'm going to go to someone else who can fix me. <laughs> Are there any common mistakes that clinicians make when dealing with TMJ issues? Yeah, if I've, I find that a lot of them just like tell them to stretch the mouth as much as they can, like stretch and stretch and stretch. And it's what we do for everything. It's like, oh, your back hurts. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to flex it. Your piriformis hurts. I'm going to stretch it. Like everyone wants to stretch everything. But stretching is often a trigger, especially for hypertonic muscles. Like they're already tonic, right? And I say it's like trying to break out of a Chinese finger trap by stretching and stretching and stretching it. You might eventually be able to break it, but it's a lot easier to slack it. So I tend to like do a lot of inhibitory techniques rather than stretch it, rather than, you know, get craft sticks and keep on like putting them in your mouth and try to, or try to just get like, start with two fingers and three fingers and four fingers, and just hold it there. It's like telling a back patient whose trigger is flexion to just keep on flexing and flexing and flexing despite the pain. And it, it might eventually work, just like how foam rolling eventually feels better, but I don't think it's the best way. So I think that's one of the most common mistakes. One of the other common mistakes is just not treating the neck, not necessarily correcting the posture or the, getting into like novel, novel positions and common movements or looking at directional preference or just not enough avoidance of triggers. You know? And I think that's, again, the same thing for everything. You can have the best treatment program in the world, but if you haven't identified your patient's triggers or negative ones, they can't ever build up the buffer because they're negating the effects of even their own home program. Do you have an eclectic approach to the TMJ? Yes, it's on sale for edgemobilitysystem.com. <laughs> but yeah, I, I'd like to think I have an eclectic approach to treating anything. And again, because of my mentor, Rakabad, who's still, by and large, pretty pathoanatomical, I think of it in very biomechanical means. I try not to say posture. I still do like distractions and medial lateral glides when really for the rest of the, the rest of the body, I basically don't do any what I call wiggles or joint mobilizations. You know, we're not mobilizing joints. That would, the connotation behind it is that you're defor def deforming capsules and deforming soft tissue it's, rather than just stimulate joints. But um, I think, yeah, between that, breathing, nutrition, pain science, I'd like to think I have an eclectic approach to the body. But since this is a TMJ, I, yes. I mean, my background is biomechanical. It's a TMJ from my mentor, Mariano Rakabato. But I layer a lot of, you know, stuff from what I've learned from other other seminars and 
uh, other approaches into that. Uh, what language would you use to explain a TMJ issue to a patient? As non-threatening and as unscientific as possible. I mean, I can, I can ramp up and I kind of flow like water, like Bruce Lee, and if someone understands more technical things, that's fine. If someone is like dropping D-bombs all over the place, like they're saying like disc, 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 and they're like getting kind of aggressive about it, or they're getting, um, increasing their anxiety by not being pathoanatomical enough, I just kind of switch gears and I just say like, hey, you know what? These exercises are gonna be great for your disc. These exercises are gonna totally reduce your TMJ disc or your cervical disc herniation. Because sometimes I need to tell them a little white lie to buy into the home program, to buy into my approach. And where can people find out more about you? Well, social media, Modern Manual Therapy, themanualtherapist.com is rebranded Modern Manual Therapy blog, uh, Modern Manual Therapy on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube, and uh, subscribe to my blog via email. And, I'm, and pretty much, uh, I also have two podcasts on UpDoc Media, Therapy Insiders and Untold Physio Stories. Um, if there's a social media channel, I'm probably on it. So, okay. So you guys found me, right? Yes. Awesome. <laughs> thank you. All right. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Functional First Podcast. If you're enjoying this podcast, please give us a rating on the iTunes Store and stay tuned each month for a new episode.